Ohio State gets another big-time wide receiver. How is the Wizard Brian Hartline doing it? We'll bring on a special guest to discuss that topic. Uh, Marcus Freeman swears he was misquoted. I guess, maybe, sort of, and we'll get a grab bag roundup of what's happening in the non-revenue sports, all that and more in this edition of the 11 Dubcast. Joining me, my partner in crime, as always, Johnny Genner. I am Andy Vance. Johnny, uh, big news this week, five-star 2023 wide receiver Carnell Tate commits to Ohio State, the latest in a string of big-time wide receivers to pledge their services to work for Brian Hartline's unit and take a shot at making it to the next level. Joining us to discuss that, recruiting aficionado and expert here at 11 Warriors, Garrick Hodge. Garrick, welcome to the program. Uh, you know, Johnny and I are big time, you know, recruiting fans in general. I, I can't tell you how closely I follow the permutations of the whims <laughs> of, of teenagers. I mean, basically uh, on a granular level, every second of every day, that's who I am. I can't help it. it. It's a big deal. And while Johnny and I may joke about that, and I do joke about it a lot, my interest in, in recruiting our audiences. I mean, this is the lifeblood of uh, the off season, right? Is what what's happening here. Put into context for us, if you will, what the recruitment of, of Carnell Tate, cause this was a wild one, but put in context, what his commitment means to, uh, Ohio State at this stage and putting together the 23 class. Well, first of all, happy to be on the Dubcast. I think this is the first show I've done with you, Andy. Normally, I've just had to fill in with you That's and uh, right. let, let Johnny not just ramble for 20 straight minutes and give him something to, you know, well, see, uh, see, normally that's Johnny important, lets, actually. See, normally Johnny lets me ramble for 20 straight minutes. Well, you, so it's you're a, just so interesting. I don't want to stop. Good, good turnabout is fair play. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yes. Well, um, but no, nevertheless, this was, as you mentioned, indeed a massive recruiting win for Ohio State. Um, wrote a piece on 11warriors.com earlier Tuesday that just kind of put into context how significant Brian Hartline has been, the wizard, as you called it. I think I even used uh, breaking down Brian Hartline's wizardry of recruiting wide receivers for a headline. And since the past five cycles, so going back to the 2019 recruiting cycle, so I'm counting 2023 in the mix, Ohio State has nabbed 12 commitments from top 100 wide receivers, uh, 12. That's pretty Seems like a lot. The next closest school is Alabama with seven. So, That's hilarious. That's yes. very funny. The next closest after that is Georgia and Clemson with five. So outside of Alabama, Ohio State has more than double the amount of top 100 wide receivers in the last five recruiting cycles. Or you could say that like, you know, Ohio State has the same amount as Clemson and Alabama combined, which is also a very funny way to put it. I, I enjoy that quite a bit. That's great. Yeah, that, that's another way you could put it. And, and if you want to get even more specific in top 50, uh, they have five within that time frame and Alabama has four. So they are leading everyone in the country in top 50 wide receivers in that time frame as well. So pretty remarkable. They've also recruited, I think, five five-star wide receivers. All of those uh, top 50 guys are five stars within the past oh, two and a half years. So um, pretty uh, – a whole bunch of insanity uh, just, just going – I can't even wrap my brain around it, just how much wizardry and rabbits of hats Brian Hartline is pulling out when it comes to wide receiver recruiting right about now. The thing, of course, that I, I also note, and not that Ohio State is considering anyone in the Big Ten uh, a measuring stick or a benchmark, they're absolutely competing with Alabama and, and Georgia and Clemson. But when I look at those those schools that have um, landed, you know, even one top 100 prospect, top 100 wide receiver, I, I see one, two, like two Big Ten schools even represented in there, and they each only have one apiece, Penn State and Maryland, I, I mean, that's madness that you, you have two schools in your conference <laughs> who have one apiece and the, you know, the local team has a dozen of these. Uh, how is Brian Hartline getting this done? I want to come back to Tate specifically a little bit in a little bit, but, but since we're talking about the wizard himself, what, what is going on here that has made Columbus the, you know, must uh, attend university for big time wide receivers i think he's just selling them on development i think that's really what it comes down to um and you know recent nfl draft success is only going to expedite that uh, some maybe commitments in the future 
Um, you know, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson going back to back in the NFL draft. And then if you throw Jameson Williams in there, who started his career at Ohio State, that's three success stories right there that one in the top 12 in the NFL draft. Um, and, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And I think that receivers have bought into it. I know that Carnell, uh, you know, was going back and forth between Tennessee and Ohio State. And ultimately, he picked the Buckeyes because he firmly believed this was the best place for him to get developed. And he's the closest with Brian Hartline out of any other assistant coach recruiting him in the entire country. So I think he just put a lot of trust in that relationship and stock into what Brian Hartline's saying that I'm going to develop you and I'm going to get you to where you want to be if you come and thrive in this offense at in Columbus. I think that's probably the case for maybe anybody looking at, but like, the, I mean, the elephant in the room that we can't avoid talking about is NIL. And I know that they're, you know, I've, I, <laughs> my, my key interest in this particular recruiting battle is just spending a ton of time on the Vol Nation boards and just seeing how angry they get. Um, and, and one of the biggest things they complain about is like, well, we, this was our NIL offer and the Ohio state must've matched it or gotten better or something like that. How much of that does actually play into these considerations? I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, Ohio state's got the pedigree, you've got the, the results, all that kind of stuff, but how much does the NIL matter if, if, you know, a place like Tennessee comes out and says, Hey, we rounded up $10 million, you know? that's got to play some kind of factor into anyone's decision if you're throwing a ton of money you know your way so does that factor into something like that when it comes to these big five-star recruits including tate i'm sure it's a factor i mean we'd be delusional to say that it isn't um i mean there's a reason that tennessee made it as far as they did right right um and you know especially that it's collective it's no big secret that they're Um, rumored to be making significant offers to multiple recruits that it's you know that's not a slander to say at this point because it's been reported by multiple outlets that they're considering making big money offers to lots of recruits before they you know even see the field Um, I think Ohio State you know they're I think Ryan Day used like the phrase that like if you're going 45 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour speed limit, you're going to get passed. But if you go too fast, you're going to get pulled over by the cops. So it's, mm. kind of, you know, uh, um, what do you do there? But I think what they're selling a lot of recruits on is, hey, once you've already proven your success, you're going to make a lot of money with NIL. Like, you know, CJ Stroud and Travion Henderson and uh, Garrett Wilson and all those guys did very well for themselves this year in NIL. Um, so Certainly no shortage of opportunities to do that in Columbus, but I don't think Ohio State is the school that's going to hand a recruit a seven-figure check before he even you know steps foot on Ohio Stadium. I just don't think that's – that's just not their style, and I don't think it's ever going to be their style. But um, I, in terms of how much it weighed Tate's decision, um, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> I, I don't know what the exact numerical – figure of Tennessee's collective was offering him. Um, I, I'm sure that it was not a small amount, and I'm sure that it would have been a life-changing amount of money that would have done significant wonders for he and his family, if indeed that the collective put together a nice uh, package for him. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I All that I know is that it was rumored that that was a big selling point for Tennessee was their, you know, NIL collective and, you know, they also wanted to pair him with a five-star quarterback recruit that they just got. So it wasn't, you know, just saying, Hey, we have an NIL collective and that's it. Um, they, they were trying to sell him on, on the field reasons as well, but um, ultimately he decided he wanted to get developed by Brian Hartline. And that's just kind of what it came down to. And looking at that NIL angle, I mean, I think we're going to be talking more and more about that in, in that Ryan day quote is so, spot on because i think the, the the book is far from closed on what exactly this is going to look like a year from now five years from now and in the short run at least you you'd think ohio state has a pretty compelling case to make and, and you started making it for them i think when you look at those particularly the wide receiver position those first round draft picks that you could look and say ryan hartline developed three of the top what were 11 or 12 uh, first round picks this season. I mean, that's a hell of a sales pitch. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I would, I mean, Brian Hartline tweets that every uh, two weeks, I think uh, every time, you know, the jets or 
Um, the Saints put something out with Olave and Wilson just like says like, hey, come be developed at Ohio State. I mean, I would do it, too, if uh, I had picks developed in the first three rounds. And, you know, he was even showing Jameson Williams some love. I, it's a great recruiting strategy if you can do it, but not a lot of other colleges can right now. And, and do you think, I mean, is your sense when you're following the recruitment of these uh, top players, I mean, is that is that something where you think Ohio State can continue to get guys like Carnell Tate on that message when you have places like Tennessee who are just you know stroking the check, so to speak? And I don't mean them literally, specifically the university, but the collectives and, and so on. Uh, can, can Ohio State make that more nuanced play rather than just saying, Hey, come here and sight unseen. We're going to give you X. Absolutely. They can. I wouldn't even be surprised if Carnell Tate's the only, not the only, I should say five-star wide receiver, Ohio state's going to get in this recruiting cycle. Heck, it may not be even the only one that they get this week. Who knows what uh, Brandon <laughs> decides to do. So um, yeah, I think they absolutely can. I think that I would say if, you know, I, we, we don't do crystal balls here, but if we did, I would say that I'm, you know, um, very confident that Brandon Innes is potentially going to commit to Ohio State. Obviously, he's exploring other schools that are very high in consideration for him. But I love where Ohio State stands with Brandon Innes right now, and especially with the friendship that Innes and Carnell Tate have. I think it's very likely you're going to see those uh, that wide receiver tandem team up together in Columbus. That's so that's the other thing that I find really interesting about this is like, there's so much talk about how a guy gets to a place. And then I think sometimes the guy is actually overlooked. <laughs> so I, I really do want to talk about Carl Tate as a, as an athlete, as a football player, which is what does he bring to Ohio state for people who aren't as tuned in? Let, let's say you're a, a Johnny or an Andy and you, you see this and you're like, okay, this guy's super big. He's five, got five stars. What does he bring to the table in terms of being an actual wide receiver? A uh, quick phrase I'd throw out is matchup nightmare for any cornerback. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a good frame at six foot two. I think he's only going to grow more and his frame is only going to expand more. Um, he's a tightrope artist along the sideline, um, just tremendous at hauling down those, you know, very tight throw windows to the first down markers. Uh, I think that he has exceptional speed. I think that he's a guy that can run any route you throw at him and is already going to have a great understanding of the route tree. Uh, I think that he in college is probably more slotted as an outside receiver than an inside guy. Um, I think more Ennis is more the slot receiver type of guy with his route running, but um, if they end up pairing those two together, so they would mesh really well together if that's what ends up happening. But um, Carnell Tate has played both inside and outside receiver at his high school and you know for what what else he could be is he could also be a great special teams contributor because he's also returned punts and kicks in high school and he's excelled very well in doing both so I think that you're really getting the complete package with this guy and his hands are incredibly soft and um, very very physical guy not afraid to put his head down and gain a couple extra yards or so so I think he's quite honestly a game-changing prospect for Ohio State and has the potential to be the Buckeyes next elite receiver. Wow. That's, you, that's high praise. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, the potential halls that are, are coming here. Uh, I think that's the thing that just kind of flips my lid about this the most is most schools out there, they get one player of this caliber and it's a red letter day and everybody's happy. And that's going to be it for the cycle, right? Uh, not, not the case with Ohio state. So preview for us uh, things that we should be watching in the coming mm. hours, days, weeks, uh, players that you're most interested in to see where they come. You've mentioned a couple of them already, but for folks like me who are maybe you know not um, watching minute by minute what the teens are up to these days, who should we be paying attention to? Well, yeah, Brandon Ennis, like I said, a fellow five-star wide receiver out of Florida, alongside Tate, uh, the two play on the same seven-on-seven team, um, so obviously lots of history there and, you know, um, uh, they share a great camaraderie and friendship. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he commits within the next week. Um, but I also, you know, he's kind of flipped back and forth. He's kind of started with, I want to commit later in the fall. And then he's like, I wouldn't mind just getting it over with in the summer. And then he's kind of flipped back and forth on that. But, 
Um, the way the momentum's going, I wouldn't be surprised if he wraps up his recruitment sooner rather than later. And if he ends up doing that, I like where Ohio State stands very much. Um, in terms of wide receivers keeping it down the line, I think they would take four in a scenario where they can get Noah Rogers, a very talented wide receiver out of North Carolina. Uh, had some flight issues, some travel issues, was supposed to be on an official visit to Ohio State last weekend. Um, just apparently every flight was delayed or postponed out there in the Riley area. So um, trying to, you know, work a new flight and find an arrangement to get back up to Ohio State. But obviously that messes up with his other visit plans, too. So we'll have to see how things play out there. But um, in non-wide receivers, I think that five-star safety Caleb Downs would be a fine addition to Ohio State, and I think that they're going to have a great shot at getting him, although that one's a much tighter race than maybe an Ennis or any other top premier guy like that right now. There's schools like Alabama, Georgia, uh, staying in that mix right to the very end, but he could really be that uh, prospect that commands a defense one day uh, from the secondary. So, and uh, one more I'll give you. Uh, I, I've been continuing to beat the drum that Ohio State's biggest need in the 23 cycle is a premier offensive tackle. And I think that they can nail that down if their official visit goes well with Olas Alin. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, he's a Finland product who is living in Connecticut at the moment. So they might go uh, foreign and change it up, but he's having an official visit uh, this weekend and um, gonna be uh, interesting uh, recruiting pitch from Justin Fry, his first big uh, coin toss 50, 50 to see if he can nail him down. But you got to, they got to get Yarmo kick a line in on that. What are, I mean, what are we talking about? Like, <laughs> come on, send I him think, over. I think he's a player that they really need. So it'll be very interesting to see if they can pull that one off. I'll be looking forward to uh, those couple of uh, recruitments down the road. You know, I'm looking at the, you know, the 2023 team rankings in, in terms of recruiting and whatnot. And it's, to me, it feels a little all over the place. Like, I, I know that there's still a lot to be done here, but what, what am I missing? Why, why are teams, for example, like Texas Tech, which I know they have a ton of commitments right now, but they're all three stars, basically. Um, so high. I mean, you got Cincinnati in the top 10. Like what's what's going on right now with these rankings and, and what are we looking at? Is it just that there's so much talent out there that's still, you know, TBD? It's precisely that. I mean, okay. you can only you could only make team rankings based off of actual commitments. And right. there's a lot of players that are maybe not that far away from doing so, but, uh, you know, haven't done so yet. So you can only go off based of what's official, even though, you know, commitments are far from official and the transfer portal. Right. Uh, era but um yeah no i i mean 24 7 is not just you know taking into consideration well this guy might go there this guy might go there no they're only basing it off of points of mm -hmm. um all right a three-star gets you this many points a four-star gets you this many points a high five-star gets you this many points etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know they have a cal calculator in there that anyone can do if you really want to see what player going where would change things a lot for different recruiting classes. But yeah, I mean, it is pretty interesting that Ohio state came into the day at eighth and, you know, you add Tate in there and they jump all the way up to two just behind Notre Dame. And, um, you know, Notre Dame will probably finish with the top five class. They've done very well, but I don't know if they're going to finish with the top one because there's a lot of other, you know, premier schools out there that uh, are, uh, waiting on a bunch of commitments to unfold. So yeah, that that's just very much a, you got to wait for the whole thing to play out before you take a whole lot of stock into those team rankings. So if you, if you were kind of projecting it out, let's, once this all wraps up, where would you put Ohio state and where would you put it? I mean, Alabama right now, they only have, I think like four commits. So like, where would you shake all of this out? You know, once all of these guys finally figure out where they're going. Um, I'm not going to even try to predict Alabama's <laughs> because they only have four and they'll certainly end up with far more than that. But yeah. um, I'd say Ohio state's going to finish top three. I'd be surprised. Okay. That's and, I, and well, and that's, and that's what you want to hear, right? I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I, and you were talking about, you know, interior alignment kind of being a, an area of, uh, you know, not concern, but something where they really want to make sure that they're, uh, they're loaded. Not interior set. alignment. Interior linemen, they're very set. 
Oh, a tackle, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. So then you want to get on the side and the edge there. So the other thing here that I've kind of been wondering about is like state by state, right? A lot of times I think, you know, especially people from Ohio, they want to believe that the state of Ohio is producing a lot of talent. A lot of that talent's going to stay in state. Is that going to be the case in 2023? Are there a lot of, are there additional big names within the state of Ohio um, that, you know, Ohio state's got a good inside track for? Well, they've converted on most of their targets. Um, they already have five players committed from the state of Ohio. And I would say that there might be two more added to that by the time all said and done. Mm-hmm. Uh, four-star cornerback Jermaine Matthews, who's really been a late riser, but has, uh, you know, really impressed with his uh, summer camp tour, you know, started with Ohio State June 1st, got performed well there, got an offer from Ohio State, you know, his dream school and, you know, didn't want to pull the trigger right away and kept going and worked out at LSU and got an offer from LSU and Oklahoma offered him the same day the Buckeyes did. So um, he's kind of a late riser going into his uh, senior year, but I, I think that, you know, he just took an official visit to Ohio State last weekend, and I think they've got a great shot with him. And another guy that they have a pretty great chance of getting is Arbel Reese, a four-star linebacker out of Glenville, um, you know, reestablishing that Glenville pipeline that's been so notorious for producing great players for the Buckeyes over the last, you know, uh, 16 years or so, uh, going back to 2017. But yeah, he, he was uh, a little bit uh, further away from making a decision. He won't make his until likely November or December. So, but yeah, um, those two guys are, I would say Ohio State's the favorite for both right now. So yeah, they could have up to seven Ohio guys in the class, but most of their top targets, they already locked down already. Nice. Eric Hodge, the whisperer of recruiting tidbits and nuggets you should be following him on the twitter as well as on 11warriors.com eric thanks for coming on the dubcast and uh, giving us a peek into what's ahead for the local team and of course breaking down the carnell tate commitment uh you can come back on the dubcast anytime my friend all right well thanks for having me don't be a stranger andy uh, yeah i'll make sure that the next time you come back it's not just to fill in for me maybe you can <laughs> fill in for johnny sometime and we can we can uh, we can see how that works yeah good yeah, thing johnny talk for 20 straight minutes because he'll do it if you let him i'm just gonna punch out the next segment actually after you leave and it's just gonna be johnny uh for 20 minutes finally thank you giving the people what they want all right friends that's uh, garrick hodge again thanks for joining us moving on to uh something that uh, johnny you actually took some time to write about this week that was sure uh, another fellow who um seemingly can't stop talking (laughs) i'm talking about marcus freeman head coach of the notre dame golden domers he, uh, you know, once again, and this guy, you know, I, I'm having a hard time thinking about uh, a coach in recent memory who has like seemingly not been able to keep their own foot out of their own mouth uh, as much in their first year as Marcus Freeman. He just can't stop taking shots at his alma mater, the mm-hmm. Ohio State University. Uh, and that kind of bugs me because I think prior to him actually taking the job, Ohio state fans were really excited for Marcus Freeman to be the head coach at Notre Dame. Like this was a situation where he's fondly thought of by the alumni base, uh, Ohio state fans in general, I think are pretty excited when former players do well as coaches. That seems to be a thing that people enjoy. Um, Mm -hmm. boy, has he really mucked that up big time? Where is this animosity <laughs> come? The seeming animosity. Maybe it's not really animosity, but you're seeing it's animosity. But but it, but it feels that way if you don't like you know if you're just watching the stories. What what is going on here with Marcus Freeman? Yeah. So what I basically wrote and what I think is that I I think the guy is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I don't. <laughs> I don't think he has to be. I, I don't I think this is a situation where he should feel this way. I think he feels this way because he's a guy who this is his first head coaching gig. He's at Notre Dame, which carries a lot of baggage with it just to begin with. Um, I, I don't I, I think he needs to have more confidence and, and not have to do this kind of stuff because I don't know that it helps him out. I don't know that makes Notre Dame any better. But essentially what I think is happening is that you've got Notre Dame, which is a school that it's got its own culture, its own attitude about 
uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. We're, we're so much better academically than everyone else around us. We've got, you know, this huge tradition that everybody loves and knows and respects. And, you know, again, neither of those things are true, but it's something that they tell themselves a lot. So I think that Marcus Freeman feels the need to reinforce that. To do so, unfortunately, he takes the prerequisite pot shots at public schools, including two public schools that he knows very well in Cincinnati and Ohio State. And I, I think that's just how it, you know, how the Golden Domer arrogance kind of expressed itself through him, through and him and at his position. And I just, I don't think that that's horrible or anything like that. It's predictable coming from somebody, you know, who's at Notre Dame. I think it just stings more because it's Marcus Freeman. So, you know, it, he's got to get more savvy about that. I, I think it's dumb. I think it makes Notre Dame look, you know, stodgy and kind of behind the times when he said, we don't have online classes. And I'm like, every, <laughs> every kid going into college right now is going to expect at least some component of online classes to be present at the university that they go to. That's just the, the world we live in. Um, and it's, you know, like, we don't do that. It's like, well, okay. But a lot of kids are gonna look at that and think that you guys are still living in the 1800s. So it's just stuff like that. It's the attitude. It's, it's dumb, uh, you know, and it's, it's arrogant and kind of insulting, but I, ultimately I don't think it, you know, hurts Ohio state more than it, it hurts Notre Dame. And that's why I think it's just kind of a foolish thing to say. Yeah, it definitely, I, I don't think it hurts Ohio state at all. I thought you made yeah. a really good point in your piece when these coaches, and, and I would say, you know, Nick Saban is a guy who, we, we talked at length about the Saban Jimbo Fisher dust up uh, here earlier this off season about some things that Saban said at a coach's clinic. I, I think the ubiquitousness of social media and the scrutiny that we place uh, on these coaches, I, I, I don't know sometimes if a lot of them <laughs> really realize that literally people are hanging on every word uh, sure. or are hanging on literally every word you know, a guy, because, you know, and part of the irony of this Marcus Freeman situation is that uh, Gordon Gee, who I think is the greatest university president in history, got the boot from Ohio State's trustees for taking shots at Notre Dame in mm. what was essentially tongue in cheek, you know, after dinner humor uh, at donor speech, you know, donor dinner speeches. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcus Freeman's making the same kind of you know, comments, right? This is stuff. Yeah, but that's what Notre Dame wants, right? Like, right, that's, right, right, right. That, yeah, that's the irony, that. right? That's, exactly, he's, exactly. He's doing the same exact thing that Gordon Gee got kicked out of Ohio State for doing. Right. Um, and ultimately, Notre Dame would, and Notre Dame, I'm sure, applauds that. And they're like, yes, yes, right, correct, right, right. right. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon's lines were funnier, even. Uh, yes. And so it just, it, it, it's interesting because you have this, I thought you made the point well, that you have these two different audiences that these coaches have to play to. You have the, mm -hmm. the, the oldsters, uh, as it were, the donors, the boosters, the uh, maybe parents and, and so on of these recruits. But then you're also playing to the recruits itself, uh, right. which, you know, maybe after having just had this lengthy discussion of how great Brian Hartline is, maybe it makes it all the more impressive that these coaches that can that can connect to the youths the, the way they do. Freeman's a guy who ought to be able to do that just fine. Um, but yeah, I... I don't know I, whether or not Freeman learns his lesson, so to speak, or this continues to be a carousel of what did Marcus Freeman say about Ohio State this time between now and September? <laughs> it's kind of a well, that's the thing, though. Like, why would you want to piss off Ohio State? I, I, I like that's to me just from in practical terms. I mean, Ohio State as a program and also as a fan base really love being disrespected. And I, I like that's the thing it, that is nothing really is ever in my experience as a watcher of Ohio State football these many years. Nothing really motivates the Buckeyes more than the feeling of being disrespected and right. and like someone, you know, saying that they're not all that great and that they're the underdog. Like, why would you give Ohio State that juice? That just seems like a bad idea, particularly <laughs> when you're about to play them for the first game of the season. I wouldn't do that. I would say they're awesome. They're great. They don't even need to show up to play us. We're just the little old sisters of the poor, to paraphrase Gordon Gee. And, you know, you can just go on the field and you'll probably whoop our butts and we'll just try to do it the right way. Remember, like I would throw all of that at Ohio State and see what that does. I would not say these guys are lazy. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have to work that hard. Right. Why would, <laughs> don't do that. That seems like a bad idea. I don't know. 
I'm not uh, a college football coach. This, I'm not getting paid millions of dollars, but I just think I would go the opposite route. Yeah, this to, to me is the definition of an unforced error. Like you you didn't have to say anything and you did it anyway. Kind of kind of thing. I I don't know. It, it and it's even the more puzzling probably because uh as Garrick and and you discussed in the last segment, it's not like Notre Dame's hurting for recruits right now. No, so you know, the, you don't need to manufacture heat. You know, this isn't uh, to to borrow a, a line from professional wrestling. You don't you don't need cheap heat to get the juice going <laughs> for this game. It's going to have plenty right. of heat on its own. Uh, so, right. well, Bears watching. Marcus, um, stop saying bad things about your alma mater. Uh, build up your own team without tearing down the next one. And yeah, see how that goes. Give it a try. You might like it. All right, that is uh, a good chime time for us to segue into the universally acclaimed greatest segment of the program. Ask us award anything. Winning. Yeah, it should totally be award winning. You betcha. And uh, the reminder, uh, as always, that the Dubcast is sponsored by the Dry Goods Store at elevenwarriors.com. Hats, t-shirts, stickers, barware, everything for the discerning fan of 11 Warriors and the Ohio State University in general can be found at drygoods.elevenwarriors.com. What have you in the mailbag this week, my friend? Well, we do want to remind you that the uh, 11 Dubcast, you know, we love these Ask Us Anything questions. You can send us questions to ask us anything to dubcast at 11warriors.com. And let's start with this question here from Josh, who says, do you listen to other podcasts at all? And if so, what is your favorite and or which are the ones you actively keep up with? And then he has a secondary uh, semi-related follow-up question, and I'll get to that after we answer the first. So are there any any podcasts, any things that we, we really get into? Yeah, I absolutely have a few. And it's, and it's kind okay. of funny. I, I just spent, uh, gosh, almost nine hours in the car driving from Columbus to uh, Terrytown, New York for the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. And Fantastic. yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty, pretty great week so far. Um, the, so I had lots of time and I spent probably 60% of that time listening to podcasts uh my the one i listened to the most uh, on that particular trip was called freakonomics radio so you go back probably 15 maybe close to 20 years now there's a book called freakonomics uh, written by Stephen levitt and Stephen dubner um levitt is a professor at the university of chicago an economist dubner is a is a journalist and they kind of the premise of the book is is they call it the <laughs> hidden side of everything and so they're just these interesting little 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 things um that you know everything in there from like baby naming conventions to um uh, just all kinds of odd things you wouldn't expect an economist to find interesting but that you can find in life if you look at life the way an economist does and and how people respond to incentives and um you know all, all kinds of different trends and issues really well written book very entertaining for it being a nonfiction book uh, and so their podcast is especially interesting. So they tackle a wide variety. I've listened to episodes on everything from the uh, pet mortuary industry to okay. that. I just listened to a four part series on what the heck is wrong with higher education and how are we going to fix uh, academia and the fact that fewer people are going to college and of course the student loan crisis and so on and so forth. So really interesting and diverse podcast. I love it. It's called Freakonomics Radio, but my favorite podcast uh, of all time would be Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history. Mm. Um, I didn't think season six was the best season of the show. Uh, unlike Freakonomics Radio, which is just on pretty much every week, there's a new episode. Uh, Gladwell's podcast is more uh, of a serial where he'll drop anywhere from an eight to you know ten or twelve episode season. Maybe they're all ten. I don't. I don't recall. Um, but once a year, basically, there's a new season. The first. I mean, three, maybe four seasons are just absolutely incredible. Um, almost remind you of Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story in terms of, not, not that I would compare Gladwell to Harvey as a broadcaster in any stretch of the imagination, but just the depth of storytelling and, and your, your, these little pieces of history, um, I just find really interesting. Anyway, it's called a Revisionist History. That, that's my mm -hmm. favorite, probably the most well-produced podcast I've ever listened to. I love, love those two, that and Freakonomics Radio. What about you? Nice. I I, I don't. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, the answer is no. And it's not. It's really just a. I don't. I don't. Have, I don't know. I just don't. 
I just don't really have the time, I guess. I don't know. And I'm not saying like people who listen to podcasts have like a huge amount of time or anything like that. But um, well, well listen, just... I, I listen to podcasts more when I drove more. Right. So I think yeah, if, I had, if I had an hour commute every day, I would listen to podcasts every day right. um, as it is. You know, I, I work from home. Um, I really only listen. I listen to podcasts when I'm mowing the yard. And and when I'm, you know, on long car trips, that's I mean, that's really about it. Yeah, I it's really I mean, that is the thing. Like when I when I have to take a really long, you know, really long uh, car drive. Yeah, that I'll, I'll find something that I can put on. I don't know, maybe knowledge fight, um, which kind of breaks down another um, <laughs> broadcaster that that people may be familiar with. Um maybe that uh but honestly it's just the thing about podcasts the informational ones i think i enjoy the the shorter ones maybe where it's like associated with maybe a radio like news program or something like that and it's just like an addendum to like a new show or something you know something you might hear on npr for example um the long form stuff that's an hour and a half two hours long i just i can't I just, it's not something that I, I have the dedicated time for. And for me, the way I kind of absorb information is like, I'm a quick reader, but I review the stuff that I read as I'm reading it. So I'll read a page and then I'll read it again and I'll read it again just to make sure that I have it right. And, you know, I, I read a lot of history, right? Like a lot yeah. of dense history and I'm reading a, I'm finishing up a book right now about, you know, Russia's invasion of France after France's invasion of Russia and there's so many names and places and things like that and so with the podcast i I don't like it when you know there's a lot of information that i want to know more about and i can't constantly rewind it so it's just i don't know it's hard for me to absorb information that way when i feel like it's one of those things that could be better suited in a long form format as a book rather than the spoken word so if it's like a news thing kind of like you know with the dubcast like hey we're giving you our takes on things that are going on that's something i think i can absorb and understand a little bit better than some of the stuff where it's like and like i'm not crapping on dan carlin or anything like that but that's the kind of information that's the style that i think i do better with in in written form rather than you know podcast form i think yeah. Um, and, and look, I, you know, so I work in, in media, um, in my day job as, as well as doing this. And the thing I always tell people is different mediums do different things. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. so, you know, you're, I mean, you're spot on, there are definitely things and, and by the way, not just do, not just do different mediums do different things. Well, but you, you also will have different members of the audience might want to receive that information that content in different ways you know just in the same way that i like to uh, i like to read i'm like you i like to read i read a lot of books but but i know a lot of people who you, you know are also um very happy listening to books on tape mm-hmm. uh, i'd rather read the book you know myself personally right. um and some of that's theater of the mind you know i i really enjoy that but not ever, so it's yeah and, and that's where um i i didn't get into podcasts kind of the first time um and i i'm i'm just yeah you're you're spot on i i didn't i didn't get a podcast the first time because it was like this was really big maybe oh i don't know 10 10 years ago 12 years ago people were mm-hmm. like starting to get into podcasts and they kind of died you know nobody yeah. was like podcasts are dead like you could probably go back and find a new york times article or something and then it's gone through this resurgence here and i don't think i think the resurgence happened before um, the pandemic. I don't want to just say, oh, people got into pad- podcasts during the <laughs> pandemic. I don't think that's fair to the medium. And, and I do think they're here to stay. Sure. But what does is, what is podcasting look like five years from now? I, I don't know. Yeah. Like what, what are you producing, right? What is, what is the content that's being created? And what is the demand for it? And, and it's interesting too, because, you know, we're, we're saying this in Ohio State podcast, the format of the, the dubcast has not changed significantly <laughs> since we started it over 10 years ago um but it's because the content is always new you know what i mean like again this is essentially a news reaction podcast like that's what we're doing and it's it's directed in a certain way but for us the content you know one of the things i love about talking about college sports is that there's basically an infinite amount of stuff to talk about and i don't just mean in the sense that there's always new things going on there's just you know 
they're the types of stories that are being created, the way the sport's evolving, how we can, you know, basically how we even reckon with things like NIL and, and all these other things that are going on. That, that's what makes a commentary like this, I think, engaging and interesting. I mean, and of course, ask is anything that's fun too, but as far as other podcasts where it's like, okay, we're going to do a murder podcast. Like, well, how many times can you do that? Right. And how, how, how many times but seriously though, <laughs> no, like I'm only and, laughing because I saw a meme about this the other day or, or maybe a funny tweet or something in you know, and it was kind of poking fun at that whole genre, you know, and the host is like, all right, kids, let's gather around the campfire for another tale of somebody that just got shanked, you know? Yeah. Right. I, I, it, it is kind of, cause I get the, you know, as a kid who grew up watching unsolved mysteries and thinking what a great TV show it was, I sort of get the interest in that genre. And yeah, at the same time, that's kind of a funny thing to, you know, really get into. Like, yeah, it hmm. is. And but the thing is that it's there's there is a I think a caring capacity for some of this stuff because it is basically the same. And the way that again, I haven't listened to a lot of podcast stuff, but the way that the podcasts typically are presented are very much the same right like you've got the one guy who's kind of the straight man you've got yeah. one or two other people who are bouncing and making jokes you know off each other and stuff and it's if the content really doesn't change that much right like okay like a guy got murdered who did it i don't know and it's just the, my point is is that unless you have something dynamic unless you have a dynamic subject where you can analyze and dissect different things things every week you you got to have something new that you offer people and so that's what you know i agree with you when you're looking at the fact that there were all these podcasts and it feels like a ton of them went away it's because there was only so much content that you can really offer and most of the time it's just kind of the same so um yeah i i think the stuff where it's like there's an evolving narrative you know like with sports or the news in general that's something that i would gravitate more towards but i also think in general like the 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 genre, the niche stuff, it's harder to maintain because it's, it, it stays the same a lot of the time. So I don't know. I find that interesting. It's, it's a good question. Um, I'm, the second part of this here is from Josh, who says, uh, do you find what you gravitate towards entertainment wise varies in genre style between different mediums? Or do you always go for a similar type of thing, no matter what you're consuming? So kind of along the same lines of what we're talking about, right? Like, yeah. and we like, you know, we both like kind of actiony. We like fantasy stuff. I know. Um, I, I feel like our, our tastes are fairly similar, Andy, but yeah. do you, is there a specific genre or type of medium that you like for certain types of content? I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I can answer that question that way or not, because I, I don't know if I've necessarily thought about it. I would say that, uh, I think probably my tastes are relatively well reflected around the different mediums I consume. So for example, things that I'm consuming right now um, on, you know, streaming or television, whatever you want to call it, we're rewatching the entire series of the West wing. Uh, I just got done telling you about the two podcasts I'm listening to right now. You could say, okay, that kind of fits with what I'm watching on TV, I guess. Um, what I'm reading right now on my Kindle is I'm rereading the Outlander book series. So you could say, okay, historical fiction. Um, so I tend to read a lot of historical fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I don't know, maybe that sort of dovetails along with the kind of TV programming that I'm interested in or the kind, in or the kind of, um, uh, you know, content I'm consuming video wise. Um, so yeah, I don't know. And, and then of course I do, I'm kind of separating the entertainment from stuff I consume otherwise, because I read a lot of newspapers every day and magazines and trade publications and so on that I would kind of keep separate from entertainment, if you will. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, it's probably, I don't know if I necessarily look for different things in different mediums. And if I do, it's not intentional. Yeah. I, I think I would agree with that. Although I will say, I don't know. I, I guess I'm skeptical and I, maybe I shouldn't be sometimes because I, I do come across things that I really enjoy, but I'm skeptical of when history, like serious history, right. Where it's tried to me like, you know, capital H history uh, is done in a movie uh, format, just because I feel like so often it's just, it's too, 
you know, I, I forget who said it, but somebody once said it's impossible to have an anti-war war film because the very nature of war is that it's, you know, entertaining, right? Like just in a visceral sense, there's there's bombs going off and lights and explosion. And so it's impossible to actually do that. Um, I, I will say that I think there are a couple of truly anti-war war films, but um, I, I am skeptical of those things. But on the other hand, I watched something like Chernobyl and, you know, that makes me want to read Voices from Chernobyl, which is what it's based off of. And so, you know, it, I think that's just my own bias, but I tend to the more serious the matter, the, the content, the subject matter, uh, the more I want to read it. Um, in part because I think that's a better way to do justice to the subject. And also because if it's something that I really want to know about, again, I, I, I want to be able to review it multiple times as I'm going through it. So I really get it stuck in my head and I, mm-hmm. I understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, but like I said, there's, there's a lot of excellent, like, you know, capital H history, movies, TV shows, kind of like that, that I think do uh, a pretty good job at portraying, you know, how, how, things really were or, or giving good insight or making good argument about a particular um, historical time and place. So I don't know. Very interesting question. I appreciate that, Josh. Yeah. Um, this next, yep. Uh, our next one here is from a good friend, Alvin he wants to know if you could change your first name, what would you choose? That's a boy. That's a tough one. You know, and honestly, I've never, I've never thought about that. Uh, <laughs> really? And, and I've I, thought about it a lot, actually, which I think no, is kind of funny. I, I never have. I, I guess I, I'm really happy as an Andy. And I should say this. Um, oh, well, you mother, have to change it. You don't have a choice. Well, but, Andy but, but all I'm of saying, a sudden so, becomes a four-letter word that nobody So the else thing is say. kind of funny is, like, I'm not an Andrew. Like, a lot of people might find that interesting, that mm, yeah. um, mother decided, and, and the way she described it, explained it, is very simple she was never going to call me Andrew. So why name me Andrew? You know, yeah. I was always going to be Andy. So just much like now, I'm actually Johnny, you are just, yeah, ex- exactly. And, and, you know, my, my, my mother-in-law thought that was the dumbest thing she'd ever heard when I explained <laughs> that, that, you know, it's that's just funny. The thing to do is just to, you know, I, I should be an Andrew. So maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I should be an Andrew. Um, if I had to, what about, okay. So you've thought about this a lot. You go first and maybe I'll come up with something. All right. Well, while you're gone. Okay. So when I was a kid, I thought Zach would be like Zachariah or something like that would be cool. Big Saved by the Bell fan is that? No, I just thought the letter Z sounded bad. Oh yeah, sure. That would be sweet. Yeah, Z's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Any name with Z and it's usually pretty awesome. So I thought Zach would have been sweet or Zachariah. I like Alex, but like I ended up getting when I was a kid, one of my best friends' name was Alex. I'm like, oh crap. God, way to be named that. I can't use that as my hypothetical anymore. So, um. I actually would probably go with what my mom originally wanted to name me, which was Rocco. Nice. So <laughs> she had a she had an, uh, a great uncle Rocco from Italy and um, uh, was very much, you know, thought he was cool and wanted to name me after him. And unfortunately, my well, not, maybe not unfortunately, that would have been a hard name to live up to. But uh, in retrospect, I think I could have pulled it off. So I would go with uh, I go with Rocco. Yeah, that's awesome. Good R-O-C-C-O. Yeah, I can't top that. Yeah, well, I think you know what? If you want to, that can be yours too. How about that? I can't get to you. That's good. I like that. <laughs> I, mine would probably be like something super pretentious. I don't know. It would probably be super really... like <laughs> Percival or like. Okay, maybe not like that, but you know, like it's got to be, you know, something that you could. Francis Tillywick. You're going to be. Third. You're going to be like you know, Emperor of the Known Universe, kind of pretentious, not like pinkies oh, up, see. you know. <clears throat> that's at the, fair at the yacht club pretentious <laughs> i got you all right this last one here this one's from tim who says this might be more for johnny than andy but what are your top five simpsons quotable moments um i so, got one i got one right here uh oh, good. I, I i use this quote all the time and then i'm going to give you right. the other four uh okay. my my uh daughter and i laugh about this all, all the time me fail english that's <laughs> impossible yeah and, classic ralph line i love it uh yeah ralph wiggum i mean and i feel i i've said this before like i feel bad now watching ralph wiggum but i can't not laugh like oh yeah ralph's clearly got problems but go banana there's a there's a lot of good stuff he's, he's just he's hilarious i but that one's but that was, yeah yeah that was the other one i was gonna it say it tastes like it burning tastes like burning <laughs> yeah ralph ralph the great thing about ralph is like he has carried multiple episodes. And again, by the way, when I talk about the Simpsons, I'm really only talking about the first like eight and a half seasons because, and which by the way, moves us to like 1997. 
Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I really have not been an avid Simpsons watcher since like the late two that or the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and I would say that they really only have like eight and a half good seasons, but um, the thing, here's the thing, right. And, and I would say that, and I, I, I will stick by this peak Simpsons is the best satire ever created period. And I, I don't like, I mean, in terms of like television and you could maybe even add film into that. Um, it's the best, like maybe not the best satire ever made. I think like guys like Voltaire, right. And, and Jonathan Swift probably maybe, maybe have a claim to that. But um, in terms of like moving pictures, uh, I think Peak Simpsons is, is the best. Um, my enjoyment of The Simpsons growing up and, and really a development of, of how I view humor, and I think I've talked about this before, is really just kind of like based on like the theater of the absurd and pointing out just like the absurdities in language and human interactions and all that kind of stuff. And that so those those are very formative things to me was like maybe seasons like four through seven of the simpsons three through seven of the simpsons just because the language that they were able to use in their dialogue uh, is something that i i really don't think you know other other shows and stuff futurama you know which took a lot of the writers from the simpsons i think was able to achieve a lot of that but like um i'll get into what i'm talking about here so i i could not give you like my top five it's impossible but what i can do is i can give you a few examples of the type of humor that i'm talking about that really i think influences um how i feel about humor in general right and and where it comes from in the simpsons so and and you have to like have background to it too a little bit so i'm not going to get too far into it but like one is in the Marge versus the monorail episode where uh, Lyle Lanley, who is a parody of like the music man is training um, the, you know, these slack jawed yokels from, from Springfield about how to be a monorail conductor. <laughs> and um, there's the segment they go in and there's a segment where, uh, you know, they show Lyle Lanley standing in front of a chalkboard and they're on the chalkboard. It says mono equals one. And rail equals rail. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what Lyle Lanley says. It says mono means one and rail means rail. And that includes our eight week intensive course. <laughs> and so that kills me. I love that. And then he, and then, and then uh, he just starts to walk out of the room. And somebody's like, well, who's going to be the monorail conductor? And then he just vaguely points at home. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's the kind of, that's the kind of humor that I'm talking about. I, I enjoy that kind of stuff. I also really enjoy it when uh, they undercut the audience. So another example would be um, when Santa's little helper uh, has puppies with another greyhound and uh, <laughs> they're counting the uh, puppies as they, they come out of the, the mommy dog and they're like 10, 11, 12. And then you see like time progressing they go 13, 14. And then there's like a pause and then you see them like kind of hanging around the kitchen as the clock goes around and round and around. And you're like, how many dogs are coming out of this thing? And then they just go 16 after like four <laughs> hours. And it's like, they're just waiting for that very last. But I love that. I love how they like undercut the audience like that. And there's a number of questions or a number of jokes in the Simpsons that are like that. And I love it. Um, another one, <laughs> another one is, um, where marge has a gambling problem and uh this is probably the last one i'll give because i could go on like this for hours but uh marge has a gambling problem it's the the springfield one and uh <laughs> i'll do one after this too but anyway marge has a gambling <laughs> problem and lisa and she's spending all her time at the casino and lisa goes into into their bedroom uh, it goes into Homer uh, Marge's bedroom and, you know, says, I realize it's absurd, but I just had a bad dream about the boogeyman. And Homer goes, boogeyman, and freaks out. <laughs> and and the, the joke, the funny part, the one that sticks in my head is he runs into Bart's room and he gets right in his face and he goes, Bart, I don't want to alarm you, but there may be a boogeyman or boogeyman in the house. <laughs> and then Bart screams and then they like barricade themselves in the kitchen and like <laughs> with a shotgun and there's like shotgun blasts all over the door and stuff when March finally comes like stuff like that just destroys me. And the other one that I was going to add, this is another really good uh, 
Bart Homer moment where Homer freaks out Bart in bed. And I forget, I think it's uh, when Krusty fakes his death or something like that. And, and Homer's trying to comfort him about death and how it works. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Homer's like basically like, you know, that's just a natural part of life. And then he looks really intently at, at Bart and says, why you could wake up dead tomorrow. <laughs> and, then so, and then there's a pause. There's like a two second beat. And he goes, well, good night. And he just leaves the room. And so that's what I'm talking about. That that kind of absurdity, that kind of ridiculousness. I, I actually just found another one where uh, Marge is selling pretzels and, and you know, Homer to help him out uh, enlists the mob to to basically crush all competition so that Marge can sell her pretzels. And there's a really funny uh, montage in that episode where uh, they're playing. Uh, I think the linebacker from NFL films, you know, like. And so they're playing that and. Uh, Hans Moleman is selling fries or hot dogs or something. And they turn over his cart and they say, this is a pretzel town, pretty boy. Uh, <laughs> but the best part is the best part is uh, the, where they want all of Marge's profits and they uh, pull over a car, they run her off the road and fat Tony's like, you have, you have 24 hours to give us your money. And then oh, wow. he leaves and then he comes back and he's like, and to show you you're serious or we're serious, you have 12 hours. <laughs> like just again, absurdities like that, 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 that type, the, the cadence, the beat, all of that stuff, man. Like that's what I love about it. That type of writing is brilliant. It, it keeps the listener, the audience completely wrong footed at every turn. It's funny. It's not like dirty or weird. It's just you are like, it's like you're in a boxing ring with somebody who is completely outclassing you and you have no idea where you're going to get hit the next, the next like moment. Like you have no idea. You're completely turned around. You're, you're loopy. And and that's, that's what great writing does is that it just, it hits you from all angles and you have no idea what to expect next. And linguistically, some of the, the way they constructed the jokes on that show during its heyday was like just you can't get any better than that so stuff like that man just i love it you, you have it, the punchlines are so unpredictable where things are going to go is so unpredictable and i aspire to be able to be that interested and that funny as a writer can't say i ever will be but that's the goal so Anyway, great questions for asking us. Anything. Thank you for sending those in. Those are excellent. Yeah, well done, friends. Good stuff. And uh, I, I would say Marge versus the Monorail, single best episode in the series. Is that? It's pretty high up there. I would, I would say it's in the top like three easily. It's not my favorite episode, um, but it's, it's in my top three or four or five. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, really good. Yeah, it's um, definitely my favorite. Uh, and I. Everything from just, I think Phil Hartman is brilliant to, uh, yeah, I mean, it just the, the song, it's all. It's, yeah, it's all yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. To have a very specific Music Man parody <laughs> and, and centered around a monorail being constructed, like that, the whole thing, like the episode starts with a tax surplus and then yeah. they, and then they just move it into like ever increasing heights of absurdity. And it's just, it's unbelievable. Leonard so Nimoy good. cameo. Yes. I, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then like when they're introducing Leonard Nimoy, Mayor Quimby's like, and let me just say, may the force be with me. Yes. Leonard Nimoy yes. Nimoy's <laughs> like, do you even know who I am? And Mayor Quimby's <laughs> like, I think so. Weren't you one of the little rascals? Like, like again that's what i'm talking about it is just it's it's throwing you rights when you expect lefts it is my favorite is actually lemon of troy um and again oh god maybe the best example of this entire thing okay holy crap so the the crux of the episode is that you know shelbyville steals springfield's lemon tree which was uh planted to commemorate the sweet event of the founding of Springfield and Shelbyville lemons being the sweetest fruit they had available at the time. Uh, but, <laughs> but again, this is what I'm talking about. You're what you're so, so uh, Bart organizes this posse to get into Shelbyville and to find out, you know, find this lemon tree and they can't find the damn tree. And then Bart, <laughs> the Bart's and them are walking down the street and they see this, you know, <laughs> this lemon on the ground and like and the camera focuses on this vaguely lemon shaped thing and 
<laughs> he goes, oh my gosh, there's a lemon behind that rock. And it's a, so the rock that they focus on is a yellow lemon shaped rock. <laughs> and then, and you're like, oh, I guess. And if you're not paying close attention, like, okay, well, I guess that's a lemon. And then Bart goes, look, there's a lemon behind that rock. And then the camera immediately shifts to the actual correctly drawn lemon (laughs) and it's like again you're just undercutting the audience at every turn and i love that i absolutely love that they're able to do that um and it requires really good timing it it just you have to be able to set audience expectations in a certain way it's so hard to do and they're so great at it and i i love it i absolutely love it yeah good stuff uh yeah there's a lemon behind that rock we could we could do a whole episode on the simpsons but we We really could we shan't. We're gonna we're gonna get this train back into the barn. A couple of odds and ends before we wrap up. Kudos to Hunter Armstrong and Sophie Jacques, named Ohio State's Athletes of the Year for 2021 and 2022. Armstrong, a world record-setting swimmer, and of course Sophie Jacques, uh, one of the stars of the women's hockey team this season. Ohio State uh, announcing its annual award winners Friday. They'll be eligible for the Big Ten male and female athletes of the year's award which will be later announced later by the conference later this month uh rosalind joseph returning to ohio state and succeeding karen dennis as director of track and field in other coaching news ohio state hires tcu associate head coach bill mazzello as its new head baseball coach uh i'm i'm really interested to see what happens here because you're taking a guy who's been uh working in the south and where baseball is is big time and bringing him up here in the north where it's darn difficult to win uh, at, in college D1 baseball if you're outside it is, of but kind of possible. that. It, it's possible. It's possible. It's just very, very difficult. And then we talked about this on the show, I don't know, maybe two episodes ago. It was a great ask us anything question about why we think Ohio State should be able to be number one at everything. And, you know, here's the challenge, right? So baseball, great example, go get it. Um, Greg Beals had been the head coach at Ohio State a long time. But it was clearly time for a change because Ohio State wasn't getting the job done on the diamond. I agree. All right. Good show, my friend. I think that's where we'll wrap it up this week. Uh, Stay tuned, friends. Next week, as Garrick alluded to, we might have more recruiting news to talk about. Who knows? Uh, Ohio State uh, might have an opposing head coach uh, decide to put their foot in their mouth again between now and then. It's the offseason. Anything can happen. Be sure to send your questions in for ask us anything as well until then i'm andy i'm a guy what's a guy i got another great oh, one. one of my absolute oh, favorites a guy a guy <laughs> anyway i'm johnny thanks for joining us on the 11 dubcast